All right. A little early on that one. Man, that was good. There's something powerful about the reality, friends, that you and I are standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak, that men and women have laid down their lives for centuries for the book that you and I have the privilege to open. So as we do that right now, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 1 as we continue our journey in this Truth Be Told series. A couple key thoughts from last night is maybe we walked away with that God has always existed as we learned about the truth of God. He is creator and the source of all truth. And Jesus existed at the beginning with God in full equality with him. And again, I'm grateful this morning to be able to explore uh, now moving from the truths of God into the truths of the scriptures. And we're going to find ourselves in John 1, verses 19 and following this morning. And let me just read as we are introduced now to another character, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer as he's known, and this forerunner to uh, the Christ. And I want you to notice as he comes on the scene what the scriptures say about him. John 1, verses 19 and following. It says, this is the, the testimony of John. When the Jews sent him, the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem, to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. Are you a prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you? So that we may give answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. I want you to notice here, there's this Old Testament expectation of one to come, because these people, these religious leaders of the day, they believed in this book, in what it said during their day and age, and what it forecasted, and we're going to talk about that this morning. And here we have John the Baptist, the cousin to Jesus who begins his ministry, as you know, in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey, preaching a ministry of repentance. And the religious leaders were sent to John because they are expecting now, into this timeline, at this specific point in time, something to happen. Because they knew their Bibles, and they believed their Bibles, and the predictions that were made about one who was to come. And they are asking John, are you that guy? Are you the guy that the whole Old Testament has been pointing towards this guy that we know as the Messiah? And John says no, but I want you to notice this idea, this religious idea during this day of what was expected. Now, as you think about our Old Testament, it had told about the Jewish religious leaders. They knew that humanity stood guilty before God, right? That God, as we learned about last night, had condemned Adam and Eve and the rest of their descendants to death because of sin. And yet God had promised to redeem the entire world through this person called the Messiah that would one day come and provide the solution to sin. But until the Messiah came, the Jews lived underneath law, the Mosaic law, where they were commanded to have no other gods before God himself. They were not to have idols or to murder. You know the Ten Commandments. You're familiar with those. But there are actually 613 laws which the Jewish people were called to live by. And yet what's interesting about that is that humankind was never meant to approach God through adherence to his law. This idea of moralism or checking boxes and doing all of these right things was never God's mean. He always previewed someone who was to come. Paul says in Romans 7, the law was simply meant to reveal sin. It's there to show us a hole in our lives that we cannot fix on our own. Paul says, I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, do not covenant. And because he 
they knew that the law couldn't possibly live up to these expectations, that they couldn't do the things that was required by the law. They were left condemned in their sin. And what God began to show them early on was not this idea of adherence to the law, to be perfect, to earn your way to heaven. God said, no, there's actually another way. And from the beginning, all the way back to the garden, to Genesis chapter 3, it was through the means of shed blood. As we studied a little bit last night about Adam and Eve and the sin choice that they made. In Genesis 3, it says that God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve. He and his wife, he clothed them. After they sinned in the garden, they covered themselves with fig leaves or whatever leaves that they were. God stripped their own righteousness off of them, took the shed blood of an animal, skinned that animal in their presence, and covered Adam and Eve with his provision for their son. So there's this pattern all throughout the Old Testament that the shedding of blood was required for the forgiveness of sins. And we see the sacrificial system begin to take place in the books of Leviticus and following. Burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings. Animals that would be sacrificed on behalf of the people so that they could have a relationship with a holy God. Because, again, the Old Testament law was never meant to save Good behavior or morality will never allow you to stand in the presence of a holy God. It was always through the sacrifice of the innocent on behalf of the guilty. And we're going to explore that concept in depth in the days to come. You see, the Old Testament predicts this coming of the Messiah, this perfect prophet, who would be the full embodiment of the words of God and ultimately set his people free. The people expected this conquering king that would come, but before he came as a conquering king, he must first come as a suffering servant. And based on the timeline that we're in in John, these religious leaders are gathering and they're coming to John the Baptist and they're saying, are you that guy? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that the Old Testament has predicted to come? And you'll notice these are priests and Levites commissioned from the people to find out their their answer. Is he the savior? And John said, no, I'm actually the forerunner. I am the one that comes before him to preview where he was going. Much like the Taylor Swift concert that I just got back from with my kids. There were opening bands that previewed the way for her before she came on the stage. John the Baptist, in a very similar way, was paving the way for the king that was to come. But the frustrating part of the Old Testament, as it ends, it's like a movie that you end that doesn't bring resolution. There is no final conclusion there. The Old Testament ends saying in the book of Malachi, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And then there is silence from God for 400 years until the period that you and I are reading now. Messiah was never introduced in the Old Testament, and the people were left waiting and wondering when he would come. So back down to John chapter 1, as John the Baptist is on the scene, teaching and preaching, kind of this fire and brimstone type of ministry that he had, inviting his listeners to embrace the truth. And they knew the scriptures. They knew what to expect. And if they said, okay, if you're not the Christ, then tell us, John, who you are. Look at verses 25 and following. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing? If you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he 
who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptized. Jesus would later tell us that John was the Elijah uh, foretold in Malachi, that this is the guy that was to come. That John doesn't hear necessarily answer the religious leaders' questions, but he does focus on the person of Christ. And he's building this anticipation of the Jesus who is to come. And then he says something crazy in verses 29 and following. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he has existed before me. John says something utterly astonishing about this individual Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who doesn't just cover the sins of the world as the Old Testament sacrifices would have, would allow a kind of get out of jail free card for another year for the people of Israel to live in right relationship with God. He says, no, this one is different. This ultimate lamb is the one who takes away the sins of the world. It's crazy because this has never happened before. And John says he actually existed before me. Chronologically speaking, John is actually older. But he's not speaking of age, but again, the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. John 1 verse 34 says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So John puts this on the table for them. How did John, by the way, know that Jesus was the Son of God? Answer, because he knew his Bible. And it's worth noting, John and the Jewish audience that were there at that time believed the Bible was true. There was not a doubt in their mind that the Old Testament scriptures were worthy of their attention because they were the very words of God. So much so, they were waiting for the promises in the Old Testament to be fulfilled. Friends, the Bible that we're looking at and the Bible that we're opening, as we saw attested to in that video, is no ordinary book. I wanna take a second to, to pause our conversation in the book of John and talk about the uniquenesses of the scriptures that we read from and why we can trust that the Bible, the scriptures, are indeed true. Let me give you five things to make note of if you're a note taker. Number one, there is a unity to what we see here. 66 books, Old Testament and New, written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different authors of incredibly diverse background, occupation, and class, written in three different languages in times of war and peace and poverty, prosperity, calm, upheaval, all different seasons of the world. One of the most prof profound and controversial subjects is dealt with here, that issue of sin, and yet despite all that is here, there is congruence, there is unity across the message from Genesis all the way to Revelation of God's redemptive history through Jesus Christ. All the pages of the Bible point to him. Secondly, self-assertion. The Bible itself claims to be the word of God. Over 3,800 times, by the way, the Old Testament writers believed that they were penning the very words of God. We mentioned last night, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, that all scripture is God-breathed, literally inspired by God. And the Old Testament saints certainly believe that. Jesus himself, by the way, attested to that. As he challenged the religious leaders of the day, he would say to them, have you not read? 
Have you not read your Bible? And Jesus would say, this is the word of God. And though you claim to be experts in the law and the word of God, he says to some of the religious leaders, you certainly are not. The apostles themselves, as they penned the letters of the New Testament that you and I have in front of us, believe that. Uh, Peter says that it was men moved by the Holy Spirit, speaking from God, that resulted in the letters and the epistles that we have in front of us. So there's a self-assertion to that as well. Thirdly, it's relevance. As you think about what the Bible speaks to, issues of abortion and divorce, health, homosexuality, life after death, pain, suffering, sex, social justice, and on and on. The Bible is a book though penned 2,000 years ago, and even further back as we think through the Old Testament, it is incredibly relevant to what we face today. Fourthly, I want to make mention of the reliability of the text that we have in front of us. It was alluded to in the video, but we need to ask the question, how do we know that what we have in front of us is an accurate document? How do we know that what we are reading is true? By the way, we have no original copies of the Bible. Did you know that? We don't have the book of John, like preserved in some uh, museum that was actually penned by uh, the disciple John. Uh, we don't have that. What we have are copies of the book of John. I want you to think about this for just, just a second. Let's say that I couldn't communicate with my wife, right, while I'm up here on the hill, and I decided to dictate a letter, right, inspired by me, but I'm gonna dictate it to Russell. And I'm gonna say, Russell, I want you to dictate this letter to my wife. Hey, babe, miss you. It's been a fun week at camp so far. King's Academy's amazing, having a great time with them. Love you, see you on Friday, right? He would pen all those things and write them down. Now, what Russell could do is get in front of all of you, and he could recite what I read, and you could write down every word. And that 100 or 200 or 300 or 400 people that are in this room that are writing that could then go spread it to others, and it would get spread that way. Now, would there be errors? Would you think as we copied and recopied my letter, inspired by me, penned by Russell originally in his hand, would there be errors in that letter? Of course, right? Somebody would say, he said, hey, babe. And said, no, 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 he said, hey, baby. Well, which is it? What did I say? Well, we look at the copies and we would realize, wow, 98% of you wrote the word babe and 2% wrote the word baby. And we could discern together, he said originally, babe. That was actually indeed what I said. And that's the idea of what we have in the scriptures. The number of manuscripts that we have is the most of any ancient book. We have over 24,000 copies of portions of our New Testament. Uh, by the way, the second most... Um, number of manuscripts we have for a, a book that is of antiquity is the Iliad by Homer, just 643 manuscripts compared again to 24,000 for the New Testament alone. Number two, as we look at the antiquity of the manuscripts, we have um, original copies from uh, very near to when the original pen, uh, the original document was penned. If you take again the idea of uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey written by Homer, uh, we have a 500-year gap between the time that Homer penned the Iliad and the first existing copy that we have. So the dates between the original writing and the copies that we have are very close together. Thirdly, the accuracy of the manuscripts that we have is incredible. Uh, how many of you, by the way, had to read the Iliad and the Odyssey in your English adventures? Any of those? I had to read those as well. Do you know those are only believed to be about 95% accurate to the original text? Did you know that? But no one ever said, hey, Homer didn't write this or these words aren't an accurate representation of what he meant to say, only 95% accurate. 
The Bible is considered, by the way, anywhere from 98.5 to 99% accurate to the original text. And all of the so-called errors that may be in there are like, did the original author say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus? We're, we're not sure. None of those things, by the way, those supposed errors change anything in terms of doctrine, who the Messiah is, or anything of that nature. Let me give you an example that blew me away. Now, you saw in the Joshua video earlier a group of people traveling through Israel, riding on camels. Uh, I learned when I was there not too long ago that they discovered a copy of the book of Isaiah. It's the fourth longest book in our Bible that predated the most recent copy that they have by a thousand years. The Dead Sea Scrolls, maybe you've heard of them. So they found a copy of the book of Isaiah that came a thousand years prior to the most recent copy that they have. You know what they did? They compared those two copies. Now, if there were inaccuracies in the text, in translation after translation after translation, arrived at this thing that was now a thousand years later, what would you expect to see in those two copies? You would expect to see significant differences, yes? You would see error and transmission problems over time. You know what they found out in these 2,500, 608 words in the Hebrew? Four letters different over a thousand year period. It's, a, again, just an example to show you what we have in our hands has been painstakingly um, prescribed and translated over time. So fifthly, and I'll end with this one. The Bible is a book of incredible prophecy that speaks of Jesus who is to come. I want you to imagine for a second if you had to predict the president of the United States 600 years from now. Imagine if you could tell me where he or she would be born. Uh, certain uniquenesses about them, right? All of these things that you would, you would say. And if, if you could predict maybe three things, uh, we would say that would be utterly amazing if you knew 600 years in human history who would be sitting uh, in that office in the United States of America. We would be blown away by that. There are over, by the way, 300 specific prophecies that have been fulfilled regarding Jesus Christ. 300 uh, where he was born, where he would die, and so many others. Now, did Jesus just luck out, by the way? Did he just happen to, to fall uh, into those 300 prophecies by luck? The answer, by the way, is no. If we just look at eight of those, eight of those 300, and we ask, what are the odds of somebody, some random person, fulfilling the prophecies that the Old Testament said would be true of the Messiah, of this guy to come? What are the odds that that would happen? Here are the same odds. If I brought you to my home state of Texas and I took quarters and I stacked them two feet deep and crossed the entire state of Texas and I painted one quarter red and I randomly dropped it in that pile of quarters throughout the state of Texas and I said, by chance, blindfolded, walk into the state of Texas, reach down and grab that quarter. Those are the odds that one person could fulfill eight of those prophecies. That is one to the 17th power. Uh, it's absolutely incredible as you think about these things. So as we think about the scriptures, and specific, specifically who they speak of Jesus to be, it is absolutely mind-blowing that he was able to do what he did. And again, that is just eight of over 300 prophecies. So let's return now to the book of John. And as we think through now, how people begin to respond to this guy that John the Baptist puts on display for us. In verses 35 through 51, where we will finish our time, 
people are beginning to realize this is the guy. We believe him to be the Messiah. In verse 39, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, begins to follow him when Jesus says, come and you will see. In verse 41, Andrew finds his brother Peter and says, we have found the Messiah. This is the guy. In verse 43, he, Peter, or, uh, Philip rather, is invited to follow Jesus. And then Nathaniel in verses 45 and following. And I want you to notice is this group of people begin to follow Jesus, it is because of their belief in this book and that this man is fulfilling all that we have seen. And as we read again yesterday, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life and these, it is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. These people who began to see the truths of the scriptures laid before them made choices in their day to abandon everything and begin to follow Jesus, to become the 12 that we know of, the 12 disciples. I'm reminded here of the words of Psalm chapter 1 as we conclude our time. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of God, the, the word of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Friends, as we think about these scriptures, they are true. What we learned about last night with God is true. And all of these things are beginning to point us to something, specifically someone, that we are gonna get introduced to even more fully tonight, the person of Jesus. And as we think about that and are previewing where we're to go, what we can feel a firm foundation and a confidence in is that the scriptures are pointing to him and we can believe them to be true in what these words testify about the person and work of Jesus Christ is accurate, it is real, and it's truthful. So all of these things are pointing us to Jesus Christ who will claim to be the Messiah, claim to be the hope and the redemption in him of what the Old Testament offered. So friends, as we finish, my encouragement to you is just to begin to consider that, that these words are life, that as the video told us, men and women will not die for a lie. And we have seen centuries worth of people that have literally laid down their lives that this book may end up in our hands because it contains the most important message of all of human history. And that is how God can find a way to deal with this issue of sin that has corrupted our lives and has created a chasm between he and us that we simply cannot obey enough, be perfect enough, strive hard enough to, to bridge that gap. God has to do it on our behalf. And we're gonna begin to investigate that and what the Bible says about that. And the, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, as we conclude, reminds us of the beauty of that. That God, after he spoke long ago, to the fathers and the prophets and the many portions in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Let's pray. Fathers, we take a quick look at the relevance and authenticity of your scriptures. Father, we could spend days weighing out the evidence of why what we hold in our hand is accurate and true. But Father, it all reaches the same conclusion that we can believe what you have said. And not just that the Bible is true, God, but what it says about the person of Christ is true. Lord, would you even soften our hearts now 
to embrace the message that you may have for us in this book, that this book that has changed so many lives, millions of people who have bowed their knee to Christ, Father, would you do a work even in us in that? Father, we're grateful that you have saw fit to, to preserve this book, that your words have made it through so many seasons of life uh, that they have now arrived in our hands and that we could say confidently, this is the very word of God. Father, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.